This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew Herman. I'm the pastoral resident here at Mosaic. And uh, I am very excited to have the opportunity to preach from God's Word this morning. Uh, We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts. So if you want to open up your Bibles today, we are going to be in Acts 14, chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. And, And for those of you who maybe are new, haven't been around with us for very long, it's our regular practice, as many of you more uh, long-time attendees know, it's our regular practice to preach through books of the Bible uh, because we believe that God gave us the scriptures as they are for a reason. Uh, So the Bible isn't primarily something you open and kind of just pick a verse to get your encouragement for the day, but God gave us these books, uh, and in the case of Acts, this big narrative, because it tells a story. And so we're going through that story together in the book of Acts. Uh, One other note I wanted to give about the passage I'm preaching on today. Um, If you have a paper Bible, or even if you have a digital Bible on your phone, Uh, Oftentimes, in our Bibles, there will be section headers. There's section headers in my Bible. Right above verse 8, it says, Paul and Barnabas at Lystra. Uh, After verse 18 in my my Bible, there's another section break. And so the passage I'm preaching on today, we're kind of skipping over that section break, and I'm stopping in the middle of the next section. I, I just thought this was a good moment to point out. For those of you who might be newer to Christianity, newer to the Bible, those section headers and section breaks are helpful tools added by the editors of our English Bibles, but they are not part of the original manuscripts of the New Testament. And so in the New Testament, actually, there weren't even spaces between the words in the original writing. So imagine how hard that would be to read. Uh, but we're skipping over that section break today. I just wanted to point out um, it's a helpful editorial tool, but it is not always uh, infallible in terms of how we break up the stories and ideas in the Bible as we read it. So if you'll open up your Bibles and uh, you can follow along and listen now to the reading of God's word. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. This is the word of God, and it will stand forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, as we come before you, as we open up your word, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive from your word, Lord. That you would give us ears that are willing to hear. That you would give us hearts that are ready to listen, to submit, to be transformed and shaped by your spirit. And we ask that you would guide our hearts by your spirit even now, Lord, so that we might know you and praise you and walk with you more fully this week. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So just to give a little refresher of where we are in the story of the book of Acts, uh, in, in the last chapter uh, that Adam was preaching from, Paul and Barnabas had been going out on what is no, often known as Paul's first missionary journey. And so they'd gone to the island of Crete and preached the gospel about Jesus there. They'd gone to a city called Antioch, uh, which is distinguished, if you know anything about Bible geography, the city Antioch comes up a lot. This is Antioch in Pisidia, which is a different region. So if, if that means something to you, if you know what I'm talking about with Antioch, that's great. If not, don't worry about it too much. But they went to Antioch and Pisidia, and then they were in a city called Iconium. Uh, and in Antioch and Iconium, they were run out of town by Jewish religious leaders who did not like the message that they were proclaiming. Uh, and Adam, over the last couple weeks, has been explaining to us really clearly the gospel that Paul and Barnabas had been proclaiming, the good news that God, through Jesus, is reconciling sinners to himself, and how threatening that was to many of the religious elite in the Jewish community. So Paul and Barnabas, they had tried to stone them, put them to death by throwing stones at them, and so Paul and Barnabas had fled, and now they're in a town called Lystra. And Lystra is a little bit different from the other cities that Paul and Barnabas have been to so far. So in most cities, their regular practice was to go first to the synagogue where the Jewish community worshipped, to preach the gospel from the Old Testament there, and then kind of expand out into the city as people began to believe. Uh, but Lystra, most, most historians believe Lystra was an almost completely pagan city. So there most likely was no synagogue in Lystra. And so Paul and Barnabas immediately are going out in public preaching the gospel to this pagan people group. And as Paul is preaching, uh, something rather incredible happens. Uh, Paul sees this man listening to him, this man who had been crippled from birth, and Paul sees that this man is, is paying attention, that he's believing what Paul is saying. And Paul looks intently at him. I want you to imagine for a second, if I'm preaching or if Adam was preaching, imagine if you're just sitting there and the preacher just starts staring at you. We can try that. I could try that with a couple of you. I can just kind of look intently at you for the rest of the sermon, see how you feel afterwards. You can let me know. Probably was a little uncomfortable, but it says, Paul looked intently at him, saw that he had faith to be made well. And so Paul tells him, stand up. And walk. Stand upright on your feet. And the man 
who has never walked in his entire life, not only slowly gets up and starts to hobble along, no, he jumps up. It says he sprang to his feet and began walking. What, what an incredible miracle that this crowd got to witness. And I, I want to kind of give us some corrections or some kind of guardrails about what's going on in this miracle before we talk about the rest of the story. Uh, what's happening in this miracle, there's, there's an easy way to misinterpret this passage. When it says that Paul saw that the man had faith to be made well, that might be interpreted as saying the man had enough faith that Paul was compelled to heal him. And that kind of language can often be used by prosperity teachers, by word of faith teachers, to say, basically, if you believe strong enough, God will do X, Y, or Z for you. God will heal your physical ailments. God will give you the money you want to buy that new car or to buy that house. You just have to believe enough. And that's not what is going on in this story. It's not that this man had enough faith and therefore Paul was compelled to heal him. If you look back at our passage from last week, in verse 3, it explains what's going on. It says about Paul and Barnabas, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So when, when signs and wonders are happening in the book of Acts, what's going on is that the Lord Jesus, at opportune times when he sees fit, is granting miracles in order to testify to the truth and the power of the good news that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And so this man is not being healed because he believed hard enough that God would heal him. This man is being healed because he believed the good news that Paul was preaching and the Lord saw fit to demonstrate the power of his message, the truth of his message, to put his stamp of approval, as it were, on the message by healing this man. And so Paul... He's in Lystra preaching the gospel. He heals this man who has never walked in his entire life. And the reaction, how must it have felt to be in the crowd at Lystra at that moment? In, in ancient cities like this, communities tended to be smaller. Many of these people in the crowd probably would have been aware of who this man was. They probably would have seen him out begging in the city because he probably had no other source of income. They probably knew he had been crippled. His entire life had never walked. And so when they saw this, not only would it have been some man that was healed, they would have known that man has never walked. This is impossible. And can you imagine how shocking, how amazing that would have been to see? And what would you expect the response to be from the crowd at Lystra after Paul has performed this miracle? You, you would think the natural response would be the crowd would see this miracle and they would believe the message that Paul was proclaiming, right? It would make sense that they would see this man who has never walked in his entire life spring up and begin walking and they would say, wow, what he's saying must be true. <laughs> the good news about God who is, is reconciling sinners to himself through this man named Jesus, it must be true because you see what just happened? But that's not what the crowd did. The crowd did not believe the good news that Paul was preaching. Instead, the crowd began to call Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes. They called them gods. They began to, to worship the same idols that they had worshipped their entire life in response to the miracle that Paul had performed. 
And so in this passage today, I want to to focus, before we dive into what that response means, I want to focus us on the the key verse we're going to look at in this passage. It comes in verse 15, where Paul and Barnabas say, We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. That's the main idea of this passage. Turn from vain things to a living God. And so in this passage, there's, there's two ways we're going to break down. First, we're going to look at the vanity of idolatry. And vanity here meaning worthlessness, emptiness, emptiness, powerlessness, hopelessness, the vanity of idolatry, and then the good news of the living God. Those are our, our two ideas here, the vanity of idolatry and the good news of the living God. So as we read in this passage, the the crowd sees this miracle, and instead of believing the good news, they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. Uh, It's kind of humorous that it says the crowd was was calling out in Lyconian, which would have been the native language in that region. And it's very, very likely that Paul and Barnabas did not speak Lyconian. They probably were speaking Greek to this crowd, so they might have had an interpreter. And even by the way the passage is laid out, you can tell Paul and Barnabas most likely did not realize what was going on right away. So Paul was preaching. He healed this man. The crowd started going wild, worshiping them. But Paul and Barnabas had no idea what they were saying. So it's very possible that Paul went on preaching for a few minutes thinking, wow, they must have really liked that. Like that must have really worked. Only for someone to come up to him a few minutes later and say, Actually, they think that you guys are gods. And, and Paul and Barnabas' reaction could not be more drastic. They, it says they rushed out into the crowd and tore their clothes, which was a sign often of grief, of, of, of just wretched despair in the ancient world, tearing your clothes. So they ran out into the crowd and very visibly demonstrated their displeasure But why did the crowd respond in this way? Why didn't they believe the message that Paul and Barnabas had brought to them, that Paul had been proclaiming even as he healed that man? Why did they instead start worshiping them as these gods, Zeus and Hermes? You know, I think there's an analogy here. How many of you are yourselves or kind of know someone who's a terrible, like, backseat driver? Someone who, when they're in the car just can't stop telling the driver what to do or or like grimacing when the driver does something they don't like. I'm guilty of doing that a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit, but I do that a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm a terrible backseat driver. But why do we do that? Why, when we're in the car with someone and we're not driving, why is our tendency to want to tell them what to do or to be so freaked out by every move they make on the road? It's because we're not in control, right? We, we don't like that feeling of just, I have no control over what's going to happen to me. And so if the person driving just doesn't hit their brake fast enough, I'm just done for, right? We hate that feeling of vulnerability. We hate that feeling of being out of control. And in the same way, as again, we've seen already earlier in Acts, one of, one of our biggest issues when it comes to God is the issue of control. Uh, ever since being in the Garden of Eden, humanity has wanted to be in the place of God. We have wanted to have control over every aspect of our lives, to pull the strings, to be in charge, to not be vulnerable or out of control in any way. And 
and we see that a lot even in the worship of these idols that this crowd is worshiping. So Zeus and Hermes, they were ancient Greek gods. And one of the striking things about the ancient Greek pantheon of gods is just how human they are. If you read that myths, some of you probably have read ancient Greek myths in school. And the ancient Greek gods were really just like puffed up, supercharged people. They weren't transcendent in the way that we would think of the God of the Bible as being transcendent. They definitely were not perfect. They did a lot of very evil things. They got angry really easily. You know, they could be manipulated. They could be tricked. The Greek gods were just supercharged humans, and so their worshipers could easily manipulate them and control them by doing the right things. They were easily assuaged. They were easily, uh, their favor was easily won over if you flattered them and made them feel good and did what they wanted. And so I want to suggest to you today that the reason that the crowd so quickly imposes this idea of the Greek gods onto the miracle they had just seen is because the Greek gods that are manipulatable and controllable and manageable feel a lot safer than embracing the message that Paul had brought. Just like the Jews ran Paul and Barnabas out of town because the gospel of grace takes away all control from from their system of salvation, so the pagans here in Lystra are worshiping Paul and Barnabas because viewing them as these easily manipulated idols is a lot safer and a lot more manageable than embracing the all-powerful, almighty God that Paul has been preaching to them. And so just as the Jews who rejected Paul and Barnabas had a control issue, the pagans who are worshiping Paul and Barnabas have a control issue. And we do this same thing all the time in our, in our modern day, right? We are so good at setting up idols, setting up objects of worship and systems of salvation that are manageable, that are safe, that are attainable. We, we either sometimes we'll set ourselves a really low standard and just say, well, as long as I'm better than everyone else, you know I'm probably good. Sometimes we'll set ourselves a really high standard, which ends up tearing us apart, saying I have to be as perfect as possible. Uh, sometimes our system of salvation in abusive relationships, your idol, your controllable, manageable thing might be another person. We, we set up all kinds of manageable things in our lives, things that we worship things that we devote ourselves to, things that we sacrifice to because we can manipulate them and manage them. I mean, how how much has that become visible in our election cycle? That politics is a manageable, manipulatable idol that so many of us worship. Because we, we can see the tangible change that we can make if we can just control the political system. We set up all kinds of idols in our lives. And even more, sometimes, as the crowd here did when they heard Paul's preaching, sometimes we superimpose these manageable idols onto our Christianity. Right? We we transform, we morph, we distort the message of Christ so that it feels safe, so that it feels manageable. This is evident in the Word of Faith movement that I mentioned earlier. It's, it's turning Christ into something manageable. If you just believe enough, if you just give enough, if you just do the right things, Christ will bless you. It's manageable. It's safe. It's predictable. We do this when we make Christianity about a political agenda. 
right? If you just, if you just vote the right way and support the right causes. We do this when, when we make Christianity just about some abstract idea of love. If I just love everyone, that I'm doing the right thing, then, then I'm good. We superimpose all kinds of manageable ideas. We turn the message of the gospel into this safe, easily manipulated, controllable idol that we don't have to worry about because we know how to work the system. But that kind of idolatry, as Paul points out in verse 15, that kind of idolatry is ultimately vain. It is ultimately empty. That word, the word that's translated there, vain, has a meaning of being, having no force, having no value, having no use. These systems of salvation, these objects of worship that we construct for ourselves are ultimately powerless. And there's a law of diminishing returns with all of them. The more you sacrifice them, the less you get back. And you can get into a vicious cycle where you are consumed by this idol you set up because even though you thought it would be manageable, it actually never gives you what you want. We do this all the time. And I think if we're honest, whether you're here as a Christian or if you've never believed the gospel, you can recognize this pattern in your own life. We set up these idols and they can consume us. And the vanity, the emptiness of this idolatry is displayed clearly at the end of our passage. If you'll notice in verse 18, Paul, after Paul and Barnabas have run out into the crowd and tried to keep them from sacrificing to them, it says, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Like they didn't really convince many people of their message. The people still wanted to sacrifice to them, wanted to try to worship them and get something from them. But, but they held them off, just barely. But then what happens in verse 19? One verse later, look what happens. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. That's one verse going from worship to execution. What happened? How, how did it change so drastically, so quickly? This, this contrast here, I think, is there to show us the emptiness of their worship, the, the worthlessness, the powerlessness of their idolatry. And to show us that idolatry is fundamentally ugly. Oftentimes, we have this sense that if we could just control things, if we could just get what we wanted, everything would be perfect, everything would be great. But the truth is, our desire for control, our desire to be in the position of God is a hideous thing. It is a wicked thing. And that is shown in how the Jews suddenly turned on Paul and went from trying to worship him to trying to kill him in the space of a verse. And so we see in this passage the vanity of idolatry, but then we're presented with the good news of the living God. As Paul and Barnabas rush out into the crowd, I'm going to read what Paul says to them one more time. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways 
Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul presents to these pagans the living God. And in the Bible, names of God have a lot of significance. And so when we hear the living God, that's conveying something to us. And what it's doing is it's contrasting who the true God, the God of the scriptures who who gives himself to us in Jesus, it's contrasting who he is with the vain things, the empty things, the idols that the people are worshiping. When it talks about the living God, it's contrasting the powerlessness of the idols with the power and fullness of God. When it talks about the living God, it's contrasting the goodness, the overflowing abundance of the God of the Bible who gives us food, who gives us gladness, with the emptiness of the idols who actually give you nothing. The name, the living God, pops up a few times throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, it shows up when Israel is at Mount Sinai. And if you know the story of Israel at Mount Sinai, they're there at the mountain and God is in this cloud, thundering out, giving them his law. And the people of Israel are absolutely terrified of God. And they say, I'm paraphrasing here, but they say, who has seen the living God and survived? This name, the living God, it's telling of his power. He's the maker of all things. He is infinite. He is holy. He consumes sin and weakness. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a name that, that conveys an intense, holy power and infinity. And so this could be really bad news for this people. Paul Paul mentions at the end of what he says, he talks about how God did not leave himself without a witness. Paul's talking about how God has revealed his power and the fact that he is deserving of worship in all of creation. And there's a, there's a similar idea to this in a book of the New Testament that Paul wrote called the book of Romans. And I want to read you just a few verses from Romans chapter 1 where he says this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This living God that Paul is proclaiming could not stand in starker contrast to the worthless idols that these people have worshipped. He created all things. He is all power. He is the only source of goodness. And he is worthy of all worship. And on its own, that is terrifying, terrible news. But Paul doesn't tell them that he has come to bring bad news about the living God, right? He says, we bring you good news that you should turn from vain things to a living God. So what is the good news that Paul has brought well, you remember earlier in this passage, the people wanted to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas because they thought they were Zeus and Hermes. And, and they sacrificed to them because they wanted to get something out of them. With the ancient Greek gods, sacrificing was your way to manipulate. It was your way to game the system, to get what you wanted. 
But the good news of the living God is that rather than demanding sacrifice so that he might be manipulated, he has provided the sacrifice that reconciles us to him in his son, the Lord Jesus. See, the idols of the ancient world needed to be assuaged and and pleased and manipulated and won over. But the living God, he is too high above us. He is too perfect and holy and powerful to be won over. But he has graciously made a way for us to be reconciled by sacrificing of himself. By giving his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the life we could not live, who died the death that we deserved because of our sin, who rose again, who even now is sitting in heaven ruling over all things, and who one day will return to fully bring about his kingdom. The living God sacrifices for us. And that is the good news of the living God that Paul brought See, we can, we can try to manipulate whatever idols, whatever systems of salvation we set up. We can try to control things, to make things safe and manageable. But ultimately, no matter how much we sacrifice, we will never get what we want. But if we can let go of control, if you can stop trying to be in charge of everything, to pull all the strings, and if you can turn and trust in the grace of the living God, you will have far more than you could ever ask for in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once said something about a character, Aslan, in one of his books. If you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he said about Aslan, who was kind of a figure that represented Christ, he isn't safe, but he's good. And the living God is not safe. If you trust in the living God, you will not be in control. It will not be manageable. It will not feel comfortable. It will not feel safe. But it will be good. You will have everything you need provided for you in Jesus. And so the call of this passage for all of us here today is to turn from vain things, from empty things, from powerless things, to a living God who has made a way for us in Jesus, his son. And so turning starts with hearing that message. In contrast to the crowd who heard the message and then imposed their own system of idolatry right onto it, we need to be willing to hear the word of God as it comes to us and submit to it, to believe it, to trust in it, to truly hear And so if you're not a Christian here today, if you've never believed this good news, I would encourage you, I would plead with you even, to turn from whatever vain idols you have set up and to trust in the living God who has made a way for you in his son Jesus. And if you are a Christian here today, maybe you've been walking with the Lord a long time, I would encourage you to evaluate your own heart because you are not immune from this tendency evaluate what vain things, what worthless things, what empty, powerless things you have been setting up in the place of God to make him manageable, to make him safe. In what ways maybe have you been distorting the message of the gospel so that it feels controllable? 
and instead embrace the uncontrollable, the unsafe, the almighty, gracious, living God once again. We have a God that cannot be controlled or manipulated, but that is good news. Let's pray and ask him to drive us home into our hearts. Lord, you are the living God. You are not like the idols of wood or stone. Lord, you are not like the artificial things we create. You are almighty, all-powerful, uncontrollable, holy, holy, holy God. You are the living God. And we thank you that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you, to be brought into your family by sacrificing out of yourself, Lord, by giving your own son, the Lord Jesus, in our place. Please, Lord, enable us to trust in him and to embrace you in all your fullness today. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. 